I'm Vicki Lawson. And I'm Sarah Elwood. We're the co-directors of the Relational Poverty Network, which is a collaboration among over 500 scholar activists and educators working on questions of impoverishment in the broadest sense. The network convenes conversations amongst people working in very different places around the globe in order to trouble taken-for-granted ideas about who is poor and why. And this podcast, titled New Poverty Politics for Changing Times, brings you a series of conversations between poverty scholars, activists, and educators. They think about how to keep questions of poverty and inequality front and center at a time when poverty is not part of the national conversation nearly enough. A foundational premise of the work is that poverty is always produced in relation to privilege and produced through multiple intersecting injustices. It's our hope that these conversations prompt you to think hard about questions of impoverishment and to collaborate with people who are working hard on these issues. Thanks for listening. The RPN is delighted to host this conversation between Ann Bonds, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and Sanford Schramm, City University of New York. What are, what are the sorts of po- poverty politics that we think should emerge in this kind of uh, new world that's defined by, you know, the rise in white nationalism, um, uh, ample opportunities to intensify the movement of capital upwards, intensified mm-hmm. racism, exclusionary public policies, and... Yeah, I mean, I got the opportunity to listen to that lecture that you sent, and I think you've already been thinking about this a lot. But I guess as a start, maybe we should just begin by discussing, you know, what are the kinds of new poverty politics that we need in this moment? Yeah, no, that's, uh, yeah, it's pretty uh, difficult challenge. So my students are constantly pushing back lately. They don't want to be so depressed, so they're like, um, I think my students are encouraging me to think about becoming a conservative, <laughs> or if not a conservative, someone who's interested in preserving a liberal democracy. Mm, mm. And that the first order of business is to recognize the time and place in which we live, I guess. is This is me translating now what they're saying, is right. that you know, we have to you know, man the barricades first. Right. right. And what what do the, what do you think that they are they imagining things beyond manning the barricades at this point in time or or what are they thinking beyond that? Well, one student brought up uh, yesterday that they were very hopeful given the results of the elections on Tuesday, this past Tuesday, uh, a week ago. They were saying that the resistance is working and that. Uh, people who previously hadn't been active are becoming more active, especially women and people of color, and that uh, a lot of people who feel totally marginalized by the way uh, the Trump administration is approaching things are rising up and are really giving them reasons to hope. Are you, so uh, I said, okay, good. <laughs> do you do you notice a different tone in your classrooms this semester or even last semester as opposed to maybe the years before when you taught the same courses? 
Uh, no, uh, but other people have written to me. I, I think it's striking how many of my colleagues around the country have written to me or spoke to me like at the, the conferences in August and in September about that. And so people have gone out of their way to note that students and the classroom uh, participants more generally uh, are so pessimistic mm. and mm. are really at a loss. I personally haven't experienced that. I think part of the, I don't know, it could just be the fact that I teach public policy students largely and they're like committed to being active. So mm. it's a pre-selected group. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that because um, I teach a course on race and it's a 100 level course. It's a pretty large course. Um, and, you know, I think our, our classes started, uh, and a big focus of the class is obviously about race, but also just racialized inequality, racialized poverty. And, you know, our classes started a week after the Charlottesville incidents. And I was um, very you know, I was a little bit uh, feeling a little bit of trepidation about what to expect in terms of classroom dynamics and how, you know, how white nationalism or that kind of nativist sentiment might appear in this class, especially because it is interestingly a, a it's a mixed race class, but largely white. Um, and, you know, despite that trepidation, I've actually this semester has been really for me at least, incredibly rewarding for teaching because I find that, you know, in some ways students are just primed and ready to talk about these issues because they're so front and center. I mean, every time we're, we're turning on the news and hearing white supremacy being discussed on the news and hearing, you know, tax plans being characterized as, uh, you know, just tax cuts for the rich, which of course they are, but it seems like some of these... Um, I guess some of these issues are more laid bare than they have been in the past, which means that we can talk about them perhaps a bit more openly. Do you think that that's an element that would resonate with you this semester or? Yeah, well, I'm thinking more about my writing now. So my classroom experience has largely been the same. Yeah. And I, my students are more activist and they're more optimistic. Uh, uh, we did have a discussion yesterday. We have uh, what are called auditors, or I guess technically they're called senior auditors. Yep. So if you're over 65 and you live in New York City, if there's a seat available, you can take any class for free. Mm -hmm. So I usually have like three or four senior auditors in my classes. And so in my public policy class, we have three senior auditors. And there was a discussion uh, yesterday. Um, we were talking about education. That's the, um, the topic for the week. And uh, they were talking about how whether or not the different generations uh, feel about whether young people have it harder or not. And it was an interesting, heartfelt exchange uh, going on there at one point uh, about how the context is education is changing, it's being neoliberalized, it's more about uh, leveraging your human capital to get a job mm -hmm. and you're should have choice as to which uh, marketized uh, provider is going to give you that service. And uh, it was 
pretty depressing. And they were talking about how how difficult it is. So these are young people who wanted the older people to understand that they have it harder, but they were still committed to making a difference in that kind of climate, especially if they could maybe get older people to understand that. And the older people were very much at pains to say, no, look, we understand you have it harder and uh, that you're wrong, that we don't like uh, think millennials are lazy or whatever mm. the cliche is. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I was just sitting back going like, wow, I wow. wasn't planning on talking about that. And uh, so there are some serious issues here about like, so when I was in Finland, I, I, I called it the neoliberal relations of poverty. Mm. And the so I had a great, you know, like, in Finland and in Nordic countries generally, I think it's accepted for years and years and years to take a relational approach mm -hmm. to understanding the welfare mm -hmm. state. Mm -hmm. And they see uh, the welfare state not in terms of rights, but in terms of relationships, mm -hmm. which was a distinction that Jane Addams made years and years ago. And we discussed that. And uh, they, uh, it was fascinating that uh, by coincidence, several people on the program that spoke after me, unbeknownst to me, were already planning to talk about a relational approach. Wow. Yeah. And I think neoliberalism poses a challenge for the Nordic welfare state in this specific regard. So that, in other words, if the welfare state is founded on this idea that we're all in this together, we have, we have to look at this in relational terms, it's not each should get their own right. in a more individualistic rights-based way, that should create cross-generational alliances mm -hmm. like were being discussed in my class uh, unexpectedly. And I think that's the challenge, is how do we create cross-group uh, cross-class, cross-race, cross-generational alliances mm -hmm. so that we can stand up for our collective well-being. And I think that really is sort of the challenge. And it could be that Trump's highly divisive, highly um, uh, neoliberal, individualistic, uh, zero-sum, I win, you lose kind of approach is highly offensive to people's implicit understanding of the relational character of our society and our welfare state. Yeah, yeah. say that because that's exactly you know when I was looking at these questions writing you know what are the kind of some of the priority keywords and I hear you saying uh, you know kind of collaborate uh, collaboration um, multiracial multi-class multi-generational solidarities those seem to be key elements um, and you're right, I think, that maybe some aspect, the divisiveness of the, the kind of landscape right now in some ways actually um, is creating new kinds of solidarities that seem to be really significant. 
Um, one of the questions Vicki and Sarah asked us to consider is this idea, what are priority research, research topics on impoverishment? So do you, you know, I guess in this moment, do the topics that we study as poverty scholars change? Is it the way that we approach our existing research? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, no, that's a that's a big question. That's a, so in well, there's so many different things to say. In one sense, you know, we don't want to lose uh, sight of the forest for the trees. So that's one worry that I'll just be obsessed with Trump and overlook uh, how there are these persistent problems of hardship. Uh, that are continuing to intensify and we don't want to, you know, so, so people often say, well, forget about Trump, forget about his personality, forget about right-wing populism and uh, forget about all of the hatred. It's really uh, just people overreacting. What's really problematic are the policies that might be enacted under cover of that kind of uh, emotional manipulation, and we need to keep our eyes on the prize. That uh, there's uh, you know growing problems of poverty and inequality and hunger and homelessness, and like Matthew Desmond ha has pointed out that um, neoliberal socioeconomic relations are leading pe more people to get evicted, and housing is becoming more of a problem. And more and more people in cities like New York can't afford the rent and so on and so forth. And all these things go on all the while while we're getting distracted by the circus mm -hmm. of, um, you know, Trump inflaming people's anxieties about a changing society. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that that's a legitimate concern that we, ha we have to keep in mind, like, well, what's really important? What's going on? On the other hand, I'm concerned uh, and it sounds like your teaching course that reminds us to be concerned about how uh, race relations, mm -hmm. as well as class relations and so on, uh, very much underneath all of this are making these kinds of hardships uh, all the more uh, difficult for uh, certain groups of people. And so I'm very ambivalent. I don't know whether I should be just focusing on the same old, same old and mm -hmm. how it's getting worse under neoliberalism or uh, and just focus on the, the poverty and the inequality mm -hmm. and all the socioeconomic hardship? Or should I be highlighting how our divisiveness mm -hmm. that has intensified in this era and people are exploiting it may, is really the main cause of all of that? And so, you know, given my... Um, uh, history of writing about these things, I, I think I notice people react to my writing, you know, like, oh, I thought you were going to go, you know, emphasize race. You seem to be moving away from that. Oh, no, I thought you were going to be emphasizing more the the class based in character of our inequity and so on and so forth. And it seems like there are different dimensions in my work 
uh, my writing and my teaching that highlight this ambivalence mm-hmm. I have about how to respond right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and it goes back to, you know, some, some of the things uh, that I've been hearing, and this is in a different class from students, saying, like, look, this has been happening all along. We're, this, we're seeing, you know, an intensification of you know, divisive rhetoric, to use that term that you've been using, but these are the same sorts of, you know, we're seeing an intensification of problems that have long existed, so to understand them as new is problematic. One of the things, though, that I've been very interested in following um, is the way that the working class and rhetoric around the working class is being constituted in very particular ways. Uh, you know, the, we keep hearing these, this, you know, the white working class, the working class, you know, in a way that basically hives off low-income people of color as if they're not part of the working class and also, you know, creates this particular geography, which may or may not be true, that, you know, all rural areas are white and they're all conservative. And so that's Mm. something that I'm kind of interested in tracking. There have been, you know, you mentioned uh, Desmond. I'm actually located here in Milwaukee. So we've been um, wow, that's yeah. right. You are. Yeah, you? so so you know, Milwaukee has been. You know, we've been, uh, the book has been really helpful in prompting a lot of conversations about you know housing, housing issues, eviction as a longer problem, um, and so. But at the same time, in many ways, oftentimes those conversations are kind of separated from longer histories of housing geographies in the city, you know, thinking thinking relationally, I guess, in terms of how, you know, how the eviction crisis in Milwaukee is created through the promotion of the suburbs and, and the exclusively white suburbs. And anyway, I'm just kind of spitballing here, thinking about the sorts of things that I, I think seem to be kind of priority issues. And, and you know, you mentioned eviction as being critical. Um, and then also whether or not yeah, we get distracted by what's happening at the federal level in a way that maybe changes our programs for the negative, for ongoing problems, I guess. Yeah, no, I think this idea that the country is pulling apart is uh, an important um, cliche uh, that is not entirely inaccurate and that uh, we've always been somewhat of a divided society, uh, uh, definitely along class as well as race uh, and other lines. And it it seems that it's intensified Mm -hmm. under neoliberalism uh, where people are authorized to think in terms of winners and losers, Mm -hmm. to use uh, Donald Trump's rhetoric. And we've become more segregated, uh, not just racially, but economically and uh, politically, it seems now, that people choose to live in areas where their people are, and that includes politics as well as class and race, and making it harder for communities to come together across those lines. And politicians are exploiting that with gerrymandering mm. and, uh, and voter suppression and other attempts to prevent people from pushing the back against this divisiveness. And, and so a relational approach, I think, is very powerful in highlighting how uh, we're pulling apart and we need to be coming together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the resistance needs, in my mind, uh, especially in response to my more optimistic students, 
to highlight that and emphasize that and bring more different people in together uh, to push back against attempts to keep us apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I yeah, it seems like a key theme thus far is kind of thinking about. Uh, multifaceted solidarities in some point, you know, as a way, yeah. as a way to respond. Um, yeah. So what Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Questions uh, that Vicky and Sarah prompt us with also is kind of asking who who do you think um, poverty researchers should be collaborating with in this time? Uh, does this does this moment change our collaborations? Um, are there different kinds of groups we should be working with, both within or beyond the academy? What are your thoughts here? Oh wow! That's a big well, one. you know, one of my favorite things is to always emphasize how I I want to very much to be seen as a collaborator. I think uh, in one book, I think it's called Change Research, uh, which I wrote with two of my doctoral students, uh, Corey Stema and Roland Stahl. Mm -hmm. And Corey wanted the word collaboration, and I think it's in the subtitle. And to emphasize that the book was a case study of how we as researchers collaborated with activists and people in the community to uh, expand or create an affordable housing trust fund mm. and uh, in Philadelphia, which for some reason it didn't have one. And, uh, uh, and we were able to make a small contribution through our research. And so we saw our research as more bottom up where we were more on tap rather than on top, mm -hmm. that we were willing to allow our research to be structured and framed by our advocates' needs mm -hmm. so that it served uh, progressive political purposes, and we didn't apologize for that. Mm -hmm. And so I always like to put that first, mm. that um, I had for years wanted my work to be seen as more collaborative, uh, more uh, participative, that it was more grounded in the community from the bottom up, where community actors uh, enabled us uh, to be involved in their struggle rather than us setting the agenda. Uh, and recognizing that there are problems and challenges with that, mm -hmm. that, uh, that our work could get taken over or manipulated or or used for narrow partisan purposes and and a lot of the book is about how we struggled with all mm. those stuff uh, those issues and we didn't always agree mm -hmm. but i still feel that that's important mm -hmm. that too much of social science is ivory tower disconnected mm -hmm. top down managerial more about helping the state manage problems rather than helping ordinary people mm. challenge the state to hear them and address their concerns. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, absolutely. And even within our own departments, uh, you know, the, despite all the buzz of interdisciplinarity and transdisciplinarity, I mean, even talking to each other across disciplines is 
sometimes difficult to do within the academy. And it seems to me that that's so important as well as learning from the community and structuring projects around community concerns, but also learning from one another, um, which <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that's something I'm kind of struggling against is finding out, you know, I hear if so-and-so is doing this great research and, you know, getting to learn more about how they're understanding poverty. I've learned so much from, from people beyond my own field. So I guess... Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think disciplines are too disciplinary yeah, in that yes, sense. Yes, exactly. Uh, so even as, you know, the, the future of the ivory tower is multidisciplinarity, it's, it seems to be harder in the neoliberal university to actually do that kind of work. Um, uh, right, yeah. Interdisciplinarity is infinitely deferred, yeah. is the way I look at it. Yeah. If neoliberalism is the best sign of that, that yeah. like, more and more people have to publish in journals in their discipline that are recognized that have high impact scores that other going to be cited by other scholars in their narrow field and yeah gosh i would have never predicted all of that it's, well no <laughs> absolutely okay so another question um that we are asked to consider is um what kind of priorities should we as poverty researchers be taking to resist exclusionary trends um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Oh, uh, the exclusion. I, I think. Well, I, you know, I, I do think that sort of, again, goes back to this ambivalence I have. So um, it does seem that we're living through a period where politicians like Donald Trump uh, are inflaming people's anxiety about change mm, mm -hmm. in in an age of neoliberal globalization and they've been able to derail uh, people's efforts to push back against that uh, by uh, distracting people with inflammatory rhetoric that preys upon their anxieties about difference and otherness, uh, whether it's regarding immigrants or refugees or uh, persons of color living in segregated mm -hmm. communities removed from theirs. Uh, and they've been able to push that exclusionary agenda, building walls and borders, limiting uh, uh, the flow of, of populations uh, in ways that would be more inclusive. Um, and I, I think it's most unfortunate. And so you end up with a politics of exclusion rather than a politics of resistance. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, I really, I, it just seems to me that, you know, I, I keep hearing uh, us talk about similar themes, the way that divisions, uh, you know, obviously break down social movements, um, they further exclusion, and they prevent us from seeing the kind of commonalities. I guess they prevent it, they prevent a relational understanding of poverty um, in a way that shapes discourses and policy in really important ways. I mean, I guess maybe the question is, is this it's it's intensified but not necessarily new i guess in a neoliberal structure is maybe what i hear you saying is that is that a correct reading there um, right no i i think the united states for instance has historically had to struggle with uh issues of uh 
difference and diversity and we have at times tried to suggest that we've succeeded in doing that being a nation of immigrants or a melting pot or whatever cliche or metaphor you want to use when in fact it's been a lot more difficult than that and it's obvious that uh, there's still a lot of uh, hostility intergroup hostility uh, that can get inflamed. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is, um, you know, it's most unfortunate, right? Obama becomes president Mm -hmm. and we start again to entertain the idea that we're moving on, getting beyond this historic struggle we've had of inclusion in a diverse society. And and a lot of people rose up in reaction to that, Mm -hmm. which paved the way for someone like Trump to come to power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it just highlights how it's like almost one step forward, two steps back. The ongoing struggle uh, now intensified yet again. Yep. And I guess if we want to keep reading in that kind of dialectical way, we could see then these early responses to the election as being, again, another response to Trump. So uh, uh, hopefully we can Mm -hmm. continue to build on that momentum for a more kind of progressive populist politics to take root in response to this, you know, kind of broader federal and I guess international kind of context. Um, although I do, I do have to say I was disheartened to see, I don't know if you heard in, in Poland, there was that huge kind of nationalist, uh, white nationalist march. I think they were saying hundreds of thousands of people. So it's, it's, you know, I guess part of this kind yeah. of long struggle. Um, uh, yeah, as you say, two steps forward and however many back again. But there is still this interesting um, kind of groundswell of response that I'm hoping to see continue to, to grow, uh, hopefully. to make sure that we we talk about is if there are in our in in this kind of again i keep coming back to this this moment this conjecture whatever we want to call it if there are priority keywords that are kind of defining our research or that stand out to us as we develop more work in this kind of relational approach to poverty well i think solidarity is a term you used before i think mm-hmm. it's a very important term i mean going to europe regularly especially to the nordic countries who i'm so delighted for some reason want to keep inviting me back <laughs> and I, I guess they consider me like the last socialist or something <laughs> yeah. but uh the, the, the you know they use that term so easily all the time mm-hmm. and like i said the academics there all are very explicit that uh, they've always used a relational approach mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to think in solidaristic terms about how the welfare state exists to counter division or excessive individualism or capitalist preoccupations, and that that's a, a, a really their birthright, they call it, that they are born into a society uh, where people are expected to act 
collectively, uh, in solidarity with mm-hmm. others, uh, appreciating how they're in relationship uh, with each other, and it's that their mutual well-being that they're trying to achieve. And so they don't really like the idea of welfare rights mm-hmm. or the idea that individuals can make claims against the state for their own particular well-being. They're very explicit about this in all these different countries. And this includes even when they talk about capitalism. Mm. They consider themselves capitalists. Mm-hmm. But, uh, who was it? Peer um, Hull Christian Christensen from the Copenhagen Business School gave mm. a paper on um civilized capitalism. And his argument is that capitalism in Nordic countries grows up in the shadow of the welfare state for mm. decades now, and it's it, it develops and is nurtured to be more solidaristic. Hmm. Uh, even when it, it reaches out to other parts of the world, it's thinking in relational terms mm. as capitalist enterprises, mm. which I thought was really stunning. You know, in other words, they're not just proud of their welfare state; they're proud of their capitalism mm. as being relational, as being solidaristic, as being dedicated to promoting collective well-being. And they don't apologize about these things. And I would consider um, uh, them a model. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, so solidarities, collectivity, relationality, I mean, those, I guess, have been key words for a long time. But, you know, it just it, it is striking to hear you discuss that and to just think about um, an understanding of poverty and then the welfare state as something not individual, um, but instead about ensuring the promise of collective futures. And, you know, what that would mean for that kind of rhetoric to take hold in the U.S. I'm not sure how or in what way, um, but maybe we're seeing some some elements of that as people realize that we're precarious together. We're we're in this we're in this together in some way. I mean, my hope is that obviously there'll be the hard work of building those really important multifaceted movements or solidarities. But maybe there is to come out of this some sort of collective weeness that perhaps looks a little bit different than um, this kind of individual, uh, I guess, pathologized blaming of, of personal deficiencies as, as the kind of problem of poverty. Although, I, thinking of how deeply rooted that is within the American frame, it's hard to imagine that changing. But, but even so, um, Maybe that is something that we're going to see develop more in the next, I guess, what do we have, three years, if not more. <laughs> well, no, I think it's distinctly possible. As part of uh, the American tradition, it's just been pushed into the background. I mean, when if you think of different critical moments in the history of the United States, we have thought in terms of the we, mm-hmm. in solidarity, as mm-hmm. a collectivity that it will act for its uh, collective well-being, uh, you know, and sometimes it, it might be uh, questionable why we're doing that. Uh, like, say, Sputnik, and we have to act collectively and invest in the next generation and make sure they're all educated so that we can beat the Russians. Right. All right. So you know, sometimes it's not so great. 
right? Or and and even when it's not like trying to like just prove make America great again in that sense, uh, sometimes we authorize the state to be a little bit too oppressive right. in forcing us all to do what's good for the nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm not saying it's it's entirely uh, uh, pure. Uh, uh, unalloyed good it has its own challenges yes but yes. it but it, it but there are uh, moments in american history where we did think in those terms and if we're reflective in invoking those traditions again i think we can do it in a way that promotes social justice mm. That, I mean, that leaves me feeling a little bit more hopeful than perhaps where we started. Are there, <laughs> yeah, are there any other um, elements that you think you would like to add? Those are, I think, the primary questions that we've been asked to entertain in our conversation. But any, anything else about this particular moment as a poverty researcher that you think is worth um, kind of bringing into our conversation? So, well, I, you know, I think neoliberalism is real. It is a real challenge. We discussed this in class and after class. Uh, one of my students in particular, who's doing very well in the class, uh, brought this up in class and then wanted to talk afterwards. Like, there are no neoliberals. Nobody, Donald Trump doesn't call himself a neoliberal. Uh, most people do not like want to espouse an explicit neoliberal ideology. Neoliberalism is not even a term that most ordinary people use when complaining about the way things are. It's a term of art among academics. And so we talked about how academic terms are for theorizing and conceptualizing and stepping back and putting things in perspective. And that can be useful even if it's not uh, a term of art that is in everyday parlance. Uh, and I, and so I do think neoliberalism names something significant, a significant mm. moment within capitalism mm-hmm. as in reaction to uh, the rejection of uh, Keynesianism. Mm-hmm. And it seems that neoliberalism hasn't worked out very well. It's very divisive. It creates lots of inequality. It encourages people to think too individualistically. It, it marketizes too much of our life. And, and people are frustrated about all of that and haven't been able to really find their voice. And I think if we keep working on it, if we keep naming it uh, and highlighting how it, it, it is not healthy for us uh, individually as well as collectively, I think we can continue to push back on this and that the neoliberal relations mm-hmm. of poverty are what we need to be focusing on and criticizing and and suggesting that there are alternatives Mm -hmm. available Mm -hmm. that are part of our American traditions. Uh, And I think that that's a a worthwhile project that I remain committed to. And I guess I'm glad I was willing to start using the term Mm. in spite of the fact that people sometimes question whether we really need to use it. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I do feel like students are talking about capitalism and neoliberalism in a way that at least I haven't heard them in the past five, ten years talking about it, you know, as something that they can imagine perhaps 
something different at this point in time where in in previous instances I feel like it's it's it seems so um inexorable inevitable unstoppable um Mm. that maybe the fault lines are appearing in a way that allows us to create or imagine something different at least there's the hope but you're right though so I, I hear you saying the power in naming it and identifying its role in, in kind of creating the current context uh, seems really powerful for as, as an analytic for us as researchers but also for students and everyday folks learning about these phenomena yeah so yeah no, no that's well put well, listen. This has been a really great conversation, and yeah, um, I enjoyed I, it. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting, and I'm I am really um, I know that one of the things that Vicky and Sarah mentioned is that they were excited to do some networking and put people in conversation. So I'm really glad that I had this opportunity to speak with you. I look yeah. Forward, All right, great talking to you. Yeah, man. you as well. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your thoughts, and I I look forward to meeting you hopefully in real life sometime soon. Yeah, it would be great. All it right. was good talking to you. You as well. Bye-bye. Bye. Have a good one. See ya.